us down to the last comic shop in five, four, three, two, one. And welcome back to the last comic shop! That's right, we are opening the shop up to newbies to help them find their way underneath this giant comic book tent of ours. And occasionally we leave the lights on for legends! That stumble into the shop and give us the opportunity to talk to them, pick their brains. Yes, and I'm the host with the most, Andy Larson, and I'm joined by Chad Smith and Jay Scott. And boy, do we have a corker of an episode for you today. Really. Uh, I've said that in the past. We've had some fantastic comic book guests on. But boy, to have the legendary Roy Thomas come to the last comic shop and talk to us for the next hour is just—it's just amazing. Like I, I can't say enough about it. I mean, there's so many books that Roy Thomas has written over the years that I've enjoyed, and I'm sure that Chad J.A., you've got books that you've loved as well. Roy Thomas—it begins and it ends with Savage Sword of Conan. The work he did on that series. John Bashima with Alfredo Alcala. I mean, there's a reason why I have eight Omnibuy and most <laughs> of it's Roy Thomas. Wow. I See, for me, I have to go first impressions. One of the first books I got when I started reading Spider-Man was Amazing Spider-Man 101, where Spider-Man gets six arms and he's like, ah, but not like this! Not like this! Ah! And it also introduces Morbius, the living vampire. And that story uh, was written by Roy Thomas is filling in for the great Stan Lee as the first guy to pick up the reins on Spider-Man after Stan uh, had left. But uh, it had such an impact on me. It's one of those things. It's, it's indelible. And so without Roy Thomas, I don't get that great story. Yeah. And without Roy Thomas, you don't get the vision. That's right. Avengers 57. You don't get beholding that vision, that iconic cover done by the late, great uh, John Buscema. I don't know. He's one of my favorite characters in comic books of all time. And without Roy Thomas basically bringing back this, you know, obscure kind of golden age character that was kind of forgotten about uh, and bringing him back to the forefront and making him for at least a decade and a half, like the heart and soul of the Avengers. Like, you want to talk about late Silver Age, Bronze Age Avengers. The Vision, he was the guy. Like, he even had the corner box. That's how important he was. (laughs) That's all Roy Thomas and his influence. So, kudos to Roy. But let's get to that interview. Let's not waste any time. We were lucky to talk to him at the Hershey Comic Con just this past summer. So, here it is for all of you fans. An hour with Roy Thomas. All right, we're back here at the last comic shop, and we are sitting down with the legendary, legendary, and I can use that term in the most sincere way, Roy Thomas. Roy, I cannot count the number of comic books over my 30 years of reading comic books that I have read that you have written, sir. You you, you could count them. <laughs> It would just be a non-productive use of your time, because you know? <laughs> what would be the difference in Absolutely. the end? Absolutely. You know? Let's just say it's a fair number. But it's it's run the gamut between you know just superhero books from your Conan work from all of the licensed comic yeah. books you did. Which, again, on the last comic shop, we always talk about how licensed comic books sometimes bring folks into the comic book tent. They they bring them to the yard mm-hmm. and they're like, oh well, I I liked. Tarzan, so now I'm going to read this other character that's yeah. kind of like Tarzan. That so. was part of our motivation and, uh, to a certain extent, sure. Yeah. To widen the audience. Absolutely. Bring people in that read Conan or read Tarzan or, you know, uh, might be thinking about going to see a movie called Star Wars or whatever, yes. you know, and so forth. You know, who knew if those things would work out? Some things like Logan's Run didn't bring much of anybody in. Star Wars did a little better. Okay, yeah. a little bit. A little bit. A little bit. So uh, <laughs> traditionally what we like to start off with, though, is uh, getting a story about maybe, do you remember, like, the first comic book you ever got as a kid? Like, No, I, 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 I figure it must have been a Superman or Batman. Okay. Do, the thing I, one thing I know is that I discovered comic strips in newspapers before because, you know, the Sunday paper would come right. in or daily paper. There's a photograph of me at the age of three and a half from the summer of... That would be the summer of, what, 44, I guess, yes. in uh, 
in the park that's uh, connected to the zoo in St. Louis, 100 miles from our place, we would go about once a year. That was probably one of my first trips there at three and a half. Uh -huh. But anyway, and, and there's a picture of me and I'm crouched in the grass. There's some stranger lying on his back and, and he has a newspaper, a Sunday paper, propped open to the funnies and reading them. And I'm looking <laughs> over his shoulder at the funnies at the age of three and a half. So I mean, I pr that probably wasn't my first glance at him either. Right. But it just shows that I was interested in that type of that, that kind of thing fascinated me from the beginning, you know, because I was seeing those pictures. And then uh, sometime in the next six months, a year, I evidently at this store in my hometown, I saw some on, well, they, there were no racks in those days. Right. This, was all, this on, would be on shelves. Mm -hmm. And I saw some colorful comic. It, it was a superhero, certainly, uh, right. but it could have been Superman or Batman, probably was, could have been somebody else. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just basically, I guess I equated that with the other stuff I'd seen, but I hadn't seen superheroes before, or knew okay. anything about them. So, uh, but this colorful costumes, you know, Superman with right. the red and the blue, and even Batman looks colorful, even if it's gray and blue-black. Uh, and I just basically, according to my mother, said, uh, you know, uh, what's that? I want that, or something. And, <laughs> you know, dimes were kind of scarce in the uh, Thomas household in the, in the 40s, but, uh, you know, she picked it up for me, and that was like, she always felt maybe that was a mistake. You know, she was just like, I said, well, you know, somebody's helping you pay for this, your rent, mother, you know. <laughs> you know maybe, right. this, maybe it isn't totally a mistake. From our know? end of things, it seems like it's worked out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, will, I will ask, um, early on, you said you, you liked comic strips as well. Were there any particular, did you, like, read Hal Foster's uh, Prince Valiant, which was Yeah, where? I don't remember. I wouldn't have read about Hal, Hal Foster because there were two papers the local paper, the okay. Southeast Missouri, didn't have a Sunday edition at okay. that time, uh, but they had a daily, and I saw some strips there, uh, including Alley Oop, which became a favorite yes. for the early stage. I've always retained that, but especially the, the early V.T. Hamlin stuff. But uh, my dad, I, I don't know which one was Democrat, Republican, or anything, whatever it was. Probably my, my father would always buy the St. Louis Globe Democrat, which, okay. was, which was probably a Republican paper, but anyway, you know, there was a merger name that meant nothing. Right. And the other paper was a, a bigger paper, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And by the time of, uh, you know, about 1949 or 50, when I was 9, 10, 11 years old, I really wanted to get the Post-Dispatch on Sunday because that's where Pogo was. And I really fell, oh, I fell, in, well, I fell in love with Pogo from the comic books right. when, when he was just transitioning from animal comics to, you know, to the strip and getting his own comic book. And, I think the first things I saw were they had a couple specials where it was still Albert and Pogo, and I remember laughing out loud at stuff in that. So, but the uh, the, the Globe Democrat had a lot of strips, and, and, and the Post Dispatch would have been where uh, the King Features stuff was. Okay. That would have had Prince Valiant. So I didn't see it that often, Aww. though I did. But I did see a, you know a lot of good stuff, and of course some of it was reprinted in comics. Terry and the Pirates was reprinted. Right. I first saw it in comic books. Absolutely. But I already recognized it was really good. Uh, and everything, and the po the uh, Globe Democrat had a similar strip inspired somewhat by Pogo, which I still like, not as much as Pogo, but a lot, which is Kingaroo, yes. which is not a well-known strip. I remember the, the Don and Maggie Thompson and a few of us really always, I have about five or ten originals, though not of wow. the best stuff, started in, you know, and uh, didn't become a big hit, but it was a you know, wonderful strip. And uh, so I, I would get to read that almost every Sunday. Okay. And, but uh, you know, but I just, but I read all the strips, almost everything. Right. Uh, you know, and everything, and, I, and any, anything I would see. And of course, I, while I was mostly entered the superheroes, but I bought a lot of other kinds of comics when I could, Western humor stuff of various kinds, funny animal, yes. you know, Donald Duck, especially, you know, and that stuff. And uh, you know, I, I bought all that stuff, even if more than half of it, two-thirds of it was superheroes, right. avoided the, well, the romance, the West, the, the uh, true crime stuff, the crime does not pay stuff. Never oh, liked that. Never. Okay. I don't think I ever bought a single stuff. one of those. Yeah. And I never bought a real horror comic after the first few issues of Adventures into the Own in, in Unknown in 1948. Right. And maybe one or two others about that time. When it really got to the EC stuff, I never bought any of that. Wow. The first EC comic I ever bought was Mad Number no. 5. Okay. <laughs> you know, that's 1952. There are already yeah. a couple of two, three years into it. <laughs> point and I didn't buy that as a horror comic obviously you know? right yeah. uh, but I, I would I would always pick the horror comics up not the crime so much but the, I'd pick up EC's comics the science fiction because I like science fiction right. it was kind of horror science fiction and I, I just had this feeling that the, the horror stuff was gonna give me nightmares or bother me right and so I just never bought it but I would read it or I glance over it at the stands before I put it back and bought a Superman or Captain Marvel or something. And then years later, you know, 10, 15 years later, I met my friend Len Brown that worked for Tom Tom's Chewing Gum. Okay. Wrote the first couple of Thunder Agent story for oh, Wally nice. Woods. And, uh, you know, Len Brown is Dynamo's secret identity. Wally gave him that oh. identity because of Len. 
And anyway, the thing is that uh, he had a complete collection of ECs. Okay. And when I met him in 66, 65, in, uh, so I went out to his apartment and, and I'd be sitting around and, and I'd say, uh, do you have the story that's like a, it's a horror story, a science fiction story, but it's a takeoff on Kukla, Fran, and Ollie, the television show, or the one where uh, it's like the thing from another world movie, except it's the Frankenstein monster in the eyes instead of an alien. Yes. He said, well, how do you remember? You never bought this. I said, well, I, it came out in 1952, 53, and this is only 12, 13. I said, I just remember it. You know, I, mean, I, I saw it for 15 seconds on a newsstand once, and I remembered it. You know? I knew the ending, and you know, I just uh, kind of spe speed flipped through it, you know, but I... You know, I just didn't want to buy that stuff, but the superheroes, because they started leaving me by the late 40s. Right. Well, I that, was still there, but they were going away. Yes. Yeah, so that was the question <laughs> that I had, is because, again, it seems like you were you know, becoming a teenager about the same time that comic books were starting to be looked at as un-American. There were the book burnings throughout the United States where people would line well, that, up to it, throw yeah, we're talking comic books on. 53 and 54, was, which is the Wortham period in that yes. period. Yeah, I wrote a letter to that Senate thing that's, uh, really? I don't remember writing it, but it's been... If somebody kept it a couple of pages, and I, yeah, I, th I think I think EC in Mad and different all the magazines they they sent out a thing asking readers to write something. And I wrote and I wrote a letter which uh, somebody discovered in the archives of what Doctor Wortham or something okay. like that. So I, I was on his list, you know. Wow. But I was I would have been thirteen or fourteen okay. when I wrote that. I said I think my parents agree with me too. I don't know if I asked, them, <laughs> you know? but uh, yeah, that that was an awful time for me. I was kind of oh the. The one thing, and I didn't even remember to even mention this to anybody for years, but then I realized it was kind of a funny story that back there sometime, if it wasn't 54, it was, it probably wasn't 55, 54, maybe 53, but somewhere in the middle of that stormy period. Right. It, nearby Cape Girardeau, there was a book, there was some kind of book burning that got national attention with photographs, thing, but I don't remember that at all. But in my hometown of Jackson, Missouri, at the Lutheran School where I was going, across the way was this big yard, and, that where we played baseball and stuff in right. part of the parish uh, building and so forth. And they had a book, they were going to have a book burning there. I think they burned other stuff too. Right. Because you're burning stuff, you may yeah, as well. Yeah, you might <laughs> Why yeah. stop with These comics? Old codes, but the main thing was the comics. Yes. And, and, and there, a cry went out that ki that, that uh, you know kids should bring their comics to be burned and parents should make them do it. Okay. Well, my parents had n never stopped me from buying a comic book, not even a, the horror stuff that I did buy. They never stopped me. You know, I, my grades well, were good. Wonderful. I read a lot of other yeah. stuff. I didn't. I was never a comic book reader to the exclusion of other stuff. That right. was just a certain percentage. So, that, so they made me take some stuff. You know, it's per, you know peer pressure kind of. Right. But they didn't make me take too much. Just get a little box to stuff I didn't want. Basically, the torn up stuff. <laughs> some doubles. And, you know, yeah. Get rid of the worst of it. You know, and everything. I had some I'd cut up when I was a kid. I threw them in. They're falling <laughs> apart. So I got a hair my comics. You know, I throw it in there. But the thing is, the thing I remember is that I saw on the pile, on this pile, which was mostly comics, though not entirely, I, I, I saw two comic books I didn't recognize. Both of them had painted covers, you know, which of course some of the Dell did too. They were Ziff Davis was the oh. company at the time. And one was uh, Wild Boy of the Congo, which is, you know, Tarzan Mowgli kind of character. Right. And the other was the first issue of a comic called Space Busters, which is a science fiction Flash gordon kind of thing. Right. One of the covers, at least, was by Norman Saunders, one of the best of the... Uh, oh, I'm in wow. touch with his son now. One of the best of the of the guy. That Space Busters cover is one of my favorite comic covers. Anyway, so I see these. So I, I managed to find... I don't, I don't remember how, but I somehow managed to swipe them. Oh, my goodness. Hide <laughs> them under my shirt. Out of the fire. So I was, I'm the only person I ever know who brought comic books home from a book birdie that he hadn't had when he went. You know? So there was only two, but still, I, I threw away bunch of stuff I didn't want. Turned out the insides weren't nearly as good as the covers, but I had them in. I, would, I, I heard <laughs> stories that some of the some comic book fans at that time they would go to those things and there would be tears in their eyes because they were like, I'm sure. These were, these were well, I was really things. unhappy having to take. It, it wasn't even whether I cared about those comics. I was even at the age of 13, 14, I thought this was just stupid. Yes, right. You know, I would argue with our, our minister. Saw me sometime. I, I, I took down the issue, so it was when I was 12, 13, I was going to the Lutheran school, you know, so right. I'm 6th, 7th, 8th grade, whatever, and he, and he sees me, this is within a hundred feet of where the book burning was right. at a different time, and he sees me walking down the street, and I got a copy of, uh, of Mad, because, you know, that's the only EC comic I had, and it had an ad in it for the EC Fan Addict Club with a drawing by 
trying to remember. I think it was Wood rather than Davis. It was one of the two okay. of them. But it was a drawing of a kid. He's at a porch. He's knocked on the door, and some ghoulish figure answers. There's snakes coming out from under the porch, and <laughs> there's a skull over there with a knife in it, and so forth. And he and he, he this he's, he, the pastor, you know, takes this magazine front and look, and he his eyes fall upon this ad, and he says, "That's horror, you know, it's horror comic." I said, "No, that's humor." I said, <laughs> "Because it was intended to be humor, but it was, you know." And I just walked on with my comic book. I was never going to give an inch to these guys. You oh, know, I good, never, you know, awesome. Even if they were right, I wouldn't give an well, inch. Well. So eventually you became more involved with the fandom because eventually you started working with, with Jerry Bales on one alter ego. Like, yeah, I think yeah. you started and then. It was big influence on me. Right, right. Can you talk about a little bit of that time? Like, is yeah. any interesting stories? Yeah, well, from- I, I started writing letters to Julie Schwartz. Right. Uh, and everything. Actually, I think I wrote three letters once. Once to to the new Justice League, which was still in Brave and Bold at that time, and Green Lantern just about to become its own comic, and okay. Flash, which had recently become its own comic. And I wrote three letters, almost identical, with a couple of different paragraphs about the particular book, and the rest was the same. Sent them in to the three different magazines. Of course, they all go to Julie. I hadn't bothered to check with the NBC. You know. <laughs> so anyway, so in a short time, either then or very soon after that, as we exchanged a couple of letters, and you know, he realized at that stage I'm a, a college student. You know, and I mean, I let him know that you know I was. You know, a, 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 a almost straight A college student at the time when the average grade in college was not an A. Right. <laughs> you know, as it is now, and uh, so I, so I just uh, you know let him know that you know and so forth and uh, anyway, let him know at some stage I was really trying to get hold of the old All Star comics. I'd had them all, you know, the later ones when I was a kid, but most of it gotten torn up or this or that over right. the years. Didn't have many left, and he didn't have any of those at DC he could spare. Later he actually did find one and sent it to me a couple of years later, but. He sent me, probably with his permission, the uh, home address of Gardner Fox, who was the Justice League writer, okay. who also had, though I didn't know it at that time, until he told me was had been had written the first, as it turned out, about thirty-four issues of the, you know, of the Justice, Justice. Society. Well, thirty-two because the first two were anthologies, right. and so he gave me his home address up in Yonkers. Well, that's kind of weird, you know. You wouldn't get that now. <laughs> yeah. So I write, so I write Gardner, and you know, tell him the same stuff. And next thing you know, I say, you know, if you got any of these old comics, I could, I don't know how I would have raised the money. I was a college dude, had very little dough, you know, but I said uh, maybe I could, you know. Buyer or something, you know, something. If you had a line around, I figured I'd pay fifteen, twenty cents a piece or right. something, you know. And uh, he said, no, just six months or so ago, he had sold them to uh, to a young college professor okay. up in Detroit, who turned out actually to have been from Missouri, Kansas City. Huh. We were fellow Missourians, really. And uh, but he, so he sends me Jerry Bales's address. So within a, within about a week, <laughs> I go from Julie to Gardner to this other guy. That, you know, Julie and. Uh, Jerry in particular became such big influence in my life, Gardner too to a certain extent. Right. And Jerry immediately writes back. The first thing I get from him is a package with a letter and three issues of All-Star Comics I'd never seen before from about 1940. The wow. Number, number uh, five, uh, number five, I think it was totally complete. Cover and all, the others were incomplete, but you know, 90-something percent complete. Right. I mean, this was a revelation to me. Our man's in there, you know, I'd never seen oh, Our man. man and all that stuff. That's exciting. So, you know, this sort of cemented our friendship. And okay. He was, he was going to start some, something within a few weeks. He told me he wanted to start a little newsletter. It was going to be called the JLA Newsletter. Okay. Or, or the JLA Subscriber. It went back and forth as the title. The idea was to push Justice League and the, the superhero comics revival. Remember, there's no Marvel at the stage. Right. There's only, there's only DC and uh, maybe what Fly and that Shield comic briefly at. Yes. The, yeah. Archie, and yeah. the Shield died very quickly at right. uh, at Archie. That was it. But he wants to push that kind of thing. Will I help him? So I said, yeah. And then he went off to New York. He, by, he, by a weird chance, he suddenly, at about two weeks' notice, got an invitation in February of 1961 to go to New York mm-hmm. to uh, speak at a small college there. Okay. And Because uh, he was in what was called natural science. I never figured out what that is. But he was a brilliant guy, obviously. And anyway, so while he's there, he wants to drop in on D.C. So he spends several hours. He meets Gardner. He meets Julie. And Julie Schwartz shows him these things called fanzines, science fiction fanzines, including the first three issue of uh, Dick Lupoff and Pat Lupoff's Zero with an X. Okay. You know, which was really a science fiction magazine. A lot of other stuff, but he had, but it's for, for the very beginning it had the comic book article in the back. That series called All in Color for a Dime. Right. Starting with one on Captain Marvel, the Big Red Cheese, and so he had the first three issues there. And when Jerry saw this, his vision expanded from being a little 
newsletter to being a whole fanzine. And so it wasn't the first comic book fanzine. They'd had a few over Mad and EC years before, but the first kind of more general kind of, I mean, it was emphasized for the superhero, but still, you know, comics in general, we were willing to talk about almost anything, even though the superheroes were the main thing. Right. And uh, so that's, and he asked me to, Help him out, so he listed me as like you know an editor with him. I never right. edited. I never edited anything. <laughs> he edited me. I never. But I was glad to have that. Uh, that that's how I got into it. Simply by being you know Robin to his Batman or yeah. whatever it was, you know. And alter ego, it's still going. Alter ego. Yeah. Well, still we, going you know, I killed it off when I went into yeah. professional. I had to kill it off for a few years. But then, as when the work began to kind of dry up, by you know, you know, I got to be about sixty years old, pushing sixty. I was still getting some work in comics, but you know, I wasn't getting as much. So I thought, well, maybe I should do something else. Bring in a few bucks, give me something to do. I really enjoyed doing that magazine. I, I enjoyed history a lot. I enjoyed comics, so why not continue the comics history? Right. And so I ended up. John B. Cook was a, was just starting that comic book uh, artist magazine. Right. And I knew. Uh, Morrow, who already was doing the the Kirby Collector, and although I felt he overemphasized Jack at the expense of Stan, I said, you know, Jack certainly deserved his magazine, and and Cook wanted to do something about the non-Jack Kirby stuff, and he so when I wrote to him, he ended up inviting me to be a part of that, and within about three issues, they kicked me out and made me do my own magazine, <laughs> and, I, and I remember telling him, I said, you know, going to be a quarterly whole magazine. I don't know if I can find enough stuff to fill that. <laughs> so here I am, 180 something issues later. You know, what was it like to go from being in the the fan magazine alter ego to working and eventually running companies like Marvel? Well, it was it was like a, a dream, but you know, it was it it was just some sort of strange natural progression. But I couldn't recognize it. You know, I'm like some fish in a stream. You know, does the fish really know it's in a stream, or does it think it's in an ocean? Right. You know, whatever. I'm just in there doing whatever I can do. I was doing the magazine, sending it to to Stan, but even more so to the DC people or anybody I had an address for, just like Jerry had done. And so, uh, Julie Schwartz do Mort Weisinger. They'd been boyhood chums okay. in science fiction fandom, and. So Weisinger, who after checking with Julie and you know and finding out Julie liked me and a little more about me, offered me this job. Okay. Out of the, I, I think I'd exchanged one letter with Weisinger. All right. In, in my entire life, before that, suddenly he he writes me a letter right after I'd accepted this fellowship to study graduate uh, foreign relations at George Washington U in uh, Washington D.C. Yep. And uh, anything to get out of teaching high school. <laughs> <laughs> You know, but I thought about it, and I said, "No, I'd rather be in comic books than become a diplomat or a, or a college professor or something." Sure. That was just something that I was could do. But the comic books, even if it only lasted a year or two, or you know, but I never had a five-year plan or a one-year plan in my life. I, you know, the whole idea was be to just keep plugging away, mm -hmm. and do what you can. It'll take care of itself. And somebody asked me, "What do you think you'll be in five years?" And I said, "You know, just alive." Knock on wood. So, so you know, and then. When, when Mort and I didn't get along that well and so forth, and I met Stan and he offered me a job, I, again, I hadn't been looking for a job particularly, but offered a job by the guy I thought was the best writer in comics right. at an up-and-coming company as opposed to a sadist, you know? Yes. What's the, what's the, what's the choice? <laughs> so, you know, he hired me 15, 20 minutes after we met, and, you know, and then I worked for him for all those and years and off and on for the rest of his life, really. And those early days at Marvel, I think it was, it was funny that you said that you didn't read a lot of romance. Wasn't your one of your first books at Marvel, like where you were like a, a writer for a while, was, uh, yeah, was well, a the, romance? Really the model, which had gone back and forth between romance and humor. It was sort of like, right. it, was, it was like more romance at that stage, or more romance adventure, and there's a little humor, but it was really more of a romance without that much romance. I don't okay. know what the hell it was, and yet she was in two comics yet still. And then there was Patsy and Hetty still Walker. surviving with Patsy Walker. And that's the, that's the first thing I got that weekend uh, when I went back there after being thrown out of D.C. Right. Once, I told, once I gave more two weeks notice, it became two minutes notice. <laughs> wow. he said, you see, he actually said, this is an absolute quote, you know, he says, you're a spy for Stan Lee. I couldn't wow. figure out, what, what the word Stan Lee is going to spy on? I mean, Superman's a big selling comic book, but if Stan doesn't know enough about that, how is he going to spy on it through me? So he kicked me out. I was delighted because Stan had been very unhappy with it. I said, I have to give more, you know, two weeks or so notice. I won't leave him in the lurch. You know, he could have, right. you know. Being professional. And, uh, 
you know, but once he kicked me out, you know, say, hey, don't throw me in that, in that briar patch, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm back there that afternoon and I doubled my salary for the week by writing the comic over the weekend that he gave me. Right. Now, what, Just dialogue. What was that like working with Stan Lee and what did you learn as a writer? Uh, we, oh, we talked yesterday a little bit about yeah. the Marvel method and what did you learn yeah, as an well, editor and crowning almost, all those I mean, creatives? You know, I had written a couple of scripts by then for Charlton, though they hadn't come out for the la what became the last issues of that series of Son of Vulcan and Blue Beetle. They didn't come out till after my first Marvel work because that had already been drawn. You know, it was further ahead. They had different schedules, but it was it was great. Stan, it's kind of funny. I was the high school teacher and I hated teaching. Stan you know, was just a high school graduate. You know, never had a chance to go to college or anything like that. You know, into the depression and all that kind of thing. But he was an excellent teacher. You know, he he took me under his wing. I had a lot of crude things. You know, uh, well, you're learning, figuring it out as you go. I imagine. Yeah, he just. Well, he was in at least three days a week, if not four or five. It's kind of varied. And every morning, he would, when he'd come in, he'd, he'd have the stuff he worked on yesterday. It was bullpen bulletins or, or stuff he'd dialogued or maybe a script that needed to be sent out now to somebody, you know, a plot to somebody. Or you know, if he wasn't going to talk to him on the phone, it was a couple of pages, whatever it was. And, and he would go over it all with Saul Brodsky as his production manager on his right hand. And I would be on his, see, so Saul Brodsky was his right-hand man and I was his left-hand man. Okay. So other people got something, but nobody else, I don't think, except maybe Larry Lieber, his brother, briefly, right. before, ever got that kind of experience. I mean, there's good and bad. I, I learned Stan's bad habits that I might have, you know, in, right. in ways that might have affected me that I'd have been better off not learning. But mostly, <laughs> it was, mostly it was really a course in, especially since I was supposed to write sort of like Stan, he wasn't hiring me to write like Gardner Fox or right. Jerry Siegley's writing me. He wants me to write as much like the comics in general. Uh, and, 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 you know, it's a little more slavish at the beginning. And he loosened up over the next few months as he saw some things that I would do that wasn't what he'd do, but, right. you know, but it was still okay. Right, because they gave you, they gave you X-Men, and then they yeah, eventually gave yeah. you Avengers. And he'd rewrite the hell out of those at the beginning. Really? Oh, yeah. He, uh, the first thing with Sergeant Fury was the first. Well, yeah, first he, Commanders. Well, well, the first thing he gave me might have been that Iron Man, the first Gene Colan Iron Man. Okay. Tales of Cement 73. And he rewrote the hell out of that, so there's no credits on that. It just says, everybody worked on this one. It says Stan Lee, Roy Thomas, Marie Severin, she colored it. Mm -hmm. The guy who, Adam Austin, that was colored, penciled it. And it was just that little tiny, no credits, because he wasn't going to give me an individual credit. But it's still really 50% or more of this dialogue was mine, right. none of the plot. Then he, then he, I had me finish up a couple of Steve Ditko, Dr. Strange's mm -hmm. 10-pagers that Steve had plotted and were roughly penciled. And he, he rewrote one of them, the credit for me in the first one says, written and rewritten, and that's definitely true. <laughs> you know? And then he gave me um, Sergeant Fury. That was weird because that was the that was the morning after the, in 1965, they had this big uh, blackout in New York. Yes. November of 1965. Denny O'Neill had just come to New York a couple of weeks before at my, you know, help, you know, at my sending him the writer's test that I had taken. And uh, we were stuck on a subway, so we didn't do anything. You know, the whole city's blacked out. There's no electricity. Stan comes in the next morning with the whole, I, I think uh, Denny said it was a daredevil. It was some comic that he had totally written that night before. He said he got some kind of candle brigade, he and his wife Joan got going. And he sat there and write, wrote the dialogue for a whole good comic that was as good as anything else. Right. And he says, I'm sorry I didn't get this. Sergeant Fury written too. I was going to try to write the whole thing. It was, you know, we had this blackout, and Justice Hall said, "Yeah, we know, we know." <laughs> so, so well, I need a chance to write this. So here, Roy, you, you're now the Sergeant Fury writer. So he handed me this 20-page Sergeant Fury story, in the middle of a story. Okay. And I just so that's how I got that one. And the X-Men was everything I got in the early days. The first X-Men and the first Avengers. They were already drawn from him and Don Heck or him and Nick Ayers. Right. Know, and Werner Roth talking it over so it was by the second one I was doing the plotting but on the first one I'm just doing the dialogue so mm -hmm. sort of worked it in and uh, everyone finally after about six months he, he would get everything in a letter but he would then still want to rewrite me but he, he didn't like doing it from a script he, he preferred to see it when it was all down the pages right. well you know that's a lot of trouble once, you, once it's all lettered and inked right. it's a lot more trouble to change dialogue and captions than it is when it's in a script form. Right. So Saul Brodsky is going crazy. <laughs> so so everybody he talked to Stan, and finally one day Stan, about five or six months in, says, "You know, Saul's been telling me how it's causing all this trouble." Of course, I knew that. But right. There was nothing <laughs> I could say about it. And I said, "You know," so he says, uh, he, "He says, you know, it's so much trouble." He says, "From now on, he says." Everything, anything you do, show me the first page and the last page, and if that's okay, I'll figure the middle's okay. okay you know? yeah. <laughs> After that, things got along fine. Well, the wonderful thing about your early X-Men run is, um, at some point I could tell it's almost like this is when Roy Thomas started 
trying to take that Factor Three series where yeah. you, you came in with the mutant master. Oh, yeah, like it was like a, that was one of my first sort of big concepts. I was probably right. James Bond kind of concept as far as I because I could tell because like before that it was like almost like villain of the week or yeah. villain of the month. Yeah. But then you like you said no, I'm going to make a storyline similar to what you would yeah. eventually do with like Kree Scroll yeah. War yeah. and things like Factor, that. Yeah. Well, I always went for wars. You know, my favorite work of of art is is the Iliad by Hope. Okay, so. Uh, I just like that kind of thing. And Factor 3, to me, it sounds like a toothpaste, really. <laughs> but somebody mentioned that. But what I thought of it as being is, you know, it was, it was like the third world or fourth world. It was like, at that stage, China wasn't really, you know, figured in a big way. So uh, that's, that's why they called them the good old days, I guess. And But anyway, it was like America and Russia. So Factor 3 was, was this group that was really trying to stir up war between the two of them in, in part, you know, right? But and, and everything. I didn't get too political about it because, I, you know, Stan wouldn't have wanted that. They were kind of getting away from the Cold War stuff. Right. So I was trying to do Cold War stuff without getting, without mentioning any names. We got this enemy. We forget what the name of the country is, you know. And so that, so that was like one of the first big concepts, I guess, I had. I mean, not that it was that great, but... I'd make up mutants that were working for Factor 3. And well, I, I, forget, I, think, I forget the story now. Well, I think it's actually also one of those things where you, you see it like later in your work where you bring... But like you start bringing in characters from the past. Yeah. Like you brought back all the other mutants. I always, It was always weird though, like... Blob comes back and, and Vanisher comes back and all these people and they're working for Factor 3 and you're like, oh, I haven't seen these people in like, you know. Yeah. Well, Stan brought them back too, but I did it in a big way. In a big way, yeah. yes. And so, I mean, everything I did, I think, in those days... Well, I told Stan this once. He didn't understand it, but maybe it's just as well for me. He didn't. I said, I said everything I do in comics, Stan, I said, is either something you taught me or a reaction against it. Okay. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but most of it was really what he taught me. And, of course, then I get, you, you know, anybody would do this. You take it through the grist of your own mill. Right. You know, and you, you, you know, your own influences. I had a different education from Stan. I was a little, I mean, he was fairly well-read. and certain, he, he loved to quote. Oh, uh, the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam that was a big thing with yes. him and little bits of Shakespeare and this and that what little he knew you know and so forth but he had a really good feel for language obviously really, he, was really, he hadn't shown that much but you could tell it from the Black Knight story too when he wrote that back oh, in the 50s yes. and everything you know he had a really good command of as soon as he started writing Arthurian type dialogue he did it better than anybody else in comics back in the 50s right? and that was his minor work when he was just hacking stuff out so, so he appreciated the fact that I sort of you know, could do that same kind of thing. There were things where I was. There are ways in which I'm a better writer than Stan, but they're not. They're not important. The important th Stan was, you know, so much more important than any other writer. Uh, I don't know, maybe since Jerry Siegel, just about. You know. So we are going to step away for a quick commercial break, but we will be right back very soon with more Roy Thomas. So don't go changing. Maybe you can hit that fast advance if you want. <laughs> Hey, it's Mikey Wood, frequent Last Comic Shop guest and collector. And as a collector, I'm always in need of boards, bags, long boxes, and more to house all those comics. That's why I use promo code LCSPOD to get 10% off my orders at bcwsupplies.com. Not only does it get me a discount on BCW's already low prices, but I know using LCSPOD at checkout is another way I can show my support to the Last Comic Shop podcast and their continuing mission to bring fans together under that big comic book tent. So if you're in need of comic book supplies, Head out to bcwsupplies.com and use promo code LCSPOD today. That's LCSPOD. Hazel always knew there was something special about her cat Mooney, but she's still shocked when Mooney opens his mouth to tell her he's just had a vision. An ancient evil has awoken after centuries of sleep, and only one man can stop it the legendary warrior Beowulf. Unfortunately, it's been over a thousand years since he slayed a dragon, and he's been reincarnated as this guy. His name is Victor, and he's more unemployed millennial slacker than Mighty Warrior. Go to monarchpublishing.net for a free sample comic. Lords of the Cosmos is the critically acclaimed indie comic masterpiece that combines the best of He-Man and heavy metal into a sci-fi fantasy hero mashup. Bringing together artists, writers, and creators from across the comics industry, Lords of the Cosmos is about to launch a Kickstarter for their fifth issue. Jam-packed with celebrity artist pinups, dynamic storytelling, and beautiful artwork, this book is a masterclass for anyone who appreciates vintage storytelling in 80s and 90s style. 
Catch up on the back issues and join the Lords of the Cosmos for their next great adventure by signing up for the Kickstarter pre-launch at jasonlennox.com. We don't want to undersell your importance either, and you were also famous for convincing Stan to bring in licensed products, things well, like Conan and Star Wars. Yeah, but not entirely. I mean, for example, it wasn't my idea to bring in sword and sorcery. Uh, the readers were writing in saying, bring in some stuff from these paperbacks that are out. And there were right? four things they were pushing us. Uh, it, one was sword and sorcery. It wasn't always Conan. Okay. But it was, it, and, and it wasn't saying make up a sword. It tended to be, or else we would have made up one, which is weird that we didn't in a way, when you think about yeah. it. Right. I made up that Star of the Slayer first, but that was kind of a one-shot Conan takeoff. But it was it was like, do sword and sorcery, maybe Conan, maybe something else. Get a license, license of character, they were basically saying, whether they used that word or not. Edgar Rice Burroughs with Tars and John Carter, but but uh, DC had just got that license okay. from Western, so we couldn't get that. Lord of the Rings, which we couldn't get. Right. And then uh, said, especially Doc Savage, the pulp stuff, but especially Doc Savage, which we eventually got too. We ended up getting everything of that except except Lord of the Rings. Okay. And so finally, with uh, there was so much about the sword and sorcery stuff in particular. Not Conan as such, but you know, but sword and sorcery that Stan one day came to me and said, "Why don't you write a, you write a memo?" couple of pages or so, not just you know a couple of words, to Martin Goodman, the publisher, uh, and tell him why we should license one of these characters. Says, I don't know what this sword and sorcery stuff is. I've never read any. I, I had by that point read some, and I read some Howard. You know, it got slow. I read other stuff first, but I read some Howard, and I was realized that he was so much better than any of the other stuff. Right. And uh, I liked him better than Lord of the Rings too, as a matter of fact. Still do. And uh, anyway, so I so I have to write this letter, and I emphasize, you know, it's got. These, this, you know, these bigger-than-life heroes, you know, which is almost like a superhero. It's got these beautiful women, not always clad for, you know, <laughs> cold climates, and uh, monsters and wizards and things like that for villains. I didn't mention that, you know, I mean, it was there, but I didn't trust the fact that it was going to look like a medieval world. Right. Know, a, but anyway, so Goodman authorized me to, you know, offer some money to whichever one I wanted. And when we couldn't get Thongar, which Stan liked as a name better than Conan or Paul, <laughs> Lynn Carter, the author, was willing, but his, his agent was holding out for more than the 150 bucks a month we were offering with right. no royalties. And so I, so finally, after several months of waiting, and he, the, the agent's waiting for movement, they ain't going to be none. Goodman's not going to raise that a penny. Right. So finally, one day, I just I picked up the latest uh, Conan book just came out, the one with the Frost Giant's daughter. Okay. Beautiful cover. By, well, they're all beautiful covers by Frizzetta. But, uh, and there in the introduction by L. Spring de Camp, probably regretted later he did it, he uh, he lists the name and address of the literary agent for the Robert E. Howard estate in Pasadena, Texas. Oh, wow. Lord. Well, I don't need a house to fall on me to, to, you know, <laughs> to know that, you know, if that maybe that's the guy I should write to about getting the rights to Conan. And I said, so I, I offered him, I got so embarrassed by the 150, I offered him 200, and then when, I, when he accepted, because he, because he accepted my argument that we can't pay much money, but it might bring new readers in, right, cetera, right. new audience, and which it did. So, but, but then I just realized I wasn't going to write it. I'd have given it to Jerry Conway or somebody because you know I wasn't a big sword and sorcery fan, though I liked Howard. Right. And I was busy with other stuff, but I figured I better. You know, what am I going to do about this extra fifty bucks? Goodman's going to notice that some stuff is back. <laughs> that was probably two or three pages worth of my raid at the time. I don't know what it was, so I said I better write the first issue or so anyway. Right, you know? and that's how I got into writing. Wow, wow. But it was really the readers, you know, the readers and Stan. Stan was, you know, bigger than that. I, I, I was all for it, but it was not me. And even Star Wars, I mean, they came to me because they couldn't get to Stan. But it wasn't like I went out looking for Star Wars. The Star Wars solicited me, and I just came to feel, well, you know, this might make a couple of bucks. Had no idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no idea. Yeah, no, I guess, yeah, that's what the, the things are. Now, how did, how did you work on an adaptation like that? Did you get, like, a copy of the script, and you just worked off I had of that? a copy or? of the script, which got changed a little, you know, because, yeah. you know, it was worth. The interesting thing is Howard Chaykin, you can ask him about this. Howard uh, really did most of the work on it because I, I gave him the script and said, you know, hey, you know, Chop it however you want to. Chop it into six parts. You know, he wants to talk to me about it. You know, I've read the script. If he wants to talk to me about it over the phone or whatever, needs any more help, I'll talk to him. But basically, he did, you know, all the breakdown work, and I just came along and wrote the dialogue and captions later on, edited it. You know, I could I could overrule anything, and I had to kind of guide it through. But 
Howard did more of the work, you know, on that, to his eternal regret, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 you think so. So, I, I wanted to ask you about something a little more obscure, because it was, at, at Star Wars, believe it or not, wasn't my, I had Star Wars Treasury Edition when I was a kid, um, but I didn't know creative teams, I didn't pay attention to that kind of stuff, because I was five. But... Um, the first time I noticed your name somewhere was related to, to Atari Force, those little miniature comics that oh, they did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> how does... That was you and Jerry Conway? Yes. How, how, did, how did those come about just out of curiosity? Because that, that was well, the first Atari was owned by Warner. Okay. And we were all owned by the same company. So, so they just asked... Jerry and I, you know, worked on a lot of stuff together. We were good friends. We'd been friends at Marvel. We, you know, we, we worked together on stuff at DC. So they invited us to kind of be kind of the team working on stuff with Atari. They flew us out to... Uh, the Atari place there in yeah. Northern California once yeah, or twice. We worked we worked out the plot for that crazy Sword Quest game that yes. never got completed. The, I think three quarters of it got completed. I still have a yeah. copy of that stupid game. I never played it. <laughs> yeah. they, they called it off because they were afraid somebody was going to sue over people digging up their backyard trying to find that cockamamie sword. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, but, and the, uh, now Atari Quest was officially Jerry and me, but it was about 90 plus percent Jerry. Okay. I, you know, and, and so forth. The uh, Sword Quest was like 50-50. Mm, okay. And I don't, know, I don't know what else we ever did. Those were the two main things. Yeah. We, were, we would have done more, but then Atari kind of collapsed, you know, yeah, right yeah, after that. I was, so, but I remember we were out there, Jeanette Kahn flew out there. I remember we were out there at Atari when, uh, I don't remember, 81, I guess, because that's where we heard that... Uh, President Reagan had been, you know, shot and everything, so it was yeah. been early '81. Right, but it collapsed soon after that. The one last question that I have for you, and it was an interesting story that you talked about yesterday, was uh, the fact that you didn't write a lot of like complete scripts for comic books. You were mentioning never. that it was like it was Almost like all never. Marvel method. 18, 19 years for the Spider-Man strip, but not for the Conan strip. I wrote for two years, and. Uh, the handful of scripts I wrote, 14 of which eight got published, uh, for the adapting the first season of X Files. As far as I know, that may be the only full script I've ever written. Except I remember one time in one of Barry's stories, I wanted an extra page. I think I threw away something or other he did, and because I needed an extra page, I didn't like the way he introduced this character, the Vulture. Right. So I wrote an extra one page of script, and I had Sal Buscema draw it. And nobody can tell it's not Barry, you know, it's because Sally's <laughs> eating it. And there's this one page there, it's, it, it's, that's one of my very few script pages. It's, total, it's a total Sally Simba, Barry never even saw it until it was printed. But other than that, I just, I, I never wanted to. Even now they say, well, we always, Marv would come and say, a couple of years ago and say, well, you know, we do, uh, we all do full scripts here. I says, well, then, you know, then find a, an artist who wants to work this way or else I just don't work. I don't, I don't need the money. Yes. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to do it. You know, it's just that simple. We're not bargaining here. Right? You, know? yeah, right. you want me to do a book? I'll do it if somebody wants to work that way. So they find someone. That guy who did the last 10 pages thing with me for the Conan, that uh, Steve McNiven. Right. Who did a wonderful thing, sort of like Barry Smith kind of job, but with his own thing. But that was all from a, a plot, you know, and as were the, you know, whatever I did stuff for Dark Horse with Conan or when I did the uh, couple of issues with uh, the character Samino there, named after my oh. buddy and manager there. Samino is, the, is, is uh, some evil rat in the first of the uh, <laughs> <laughs> also as John always says one of the few characters that survives the whole story without getting killed I, I even killed a woman okay. named after my niece he gives me my <laughs> but anyway uh, everyone else dies Everybody else dies just about in that thing. Conan's <laughs> the only one left. Conan and Spaniel's back somewhere. But anyway, uh, that was with Alan Davis. That was I, they would just have to find somebody that wanted to work that way. And most people said they enjoyed it. I remember when, even years ago, when uh, when a few people tried to get John Gasimba to go back to a full script method, you know, under shooter, different things, different, and you know, he would just resist it and say, "I don't want to do that." Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, some people did. Some people like Ramona Fraden. When I brought her, I got I persuaded her to come back into comics. You know, after once her kids were raised, I came out at the right time and got her to do one or two things for Marvel. But she didn't feel like she felt like she was, you know, it's like Wally Wood, but she felt well, she's doing too much of the writing of the story. But that was the deal, and it's it's true in a way. You are doing some of the plotting of the story, and that's the deal. And if you don't feel you can do that for the money, you just don't work for Marvel or you don't work with me. But right. and you go somewhere else. It's a free country. Yeah. It seems that's like it's it's turned out well though. Exactly. Yeah. I, now they are everybody argues about stuff, and it's true. Jack didn't get enough credit, and Ditko didn't enough credit. Sometimes even Stan didn't get enough credit, although he tried. <laughs> but uh, you know, but they they all deserved a lot of credit. But the thing is, at the time, they were just all trying to make a living. Right. And, and it Stan was, a job. was always trying to give. I mean, the thing is, the raises and and eventually Marvel's rates got up as good or better than 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 DC's, but it was always based on the fact that he knew the artists were doing extra work, so, you know, and if you if you didn't want to do that, 
there were other companies you could work for. And if Wally Wood didn't feel didn't feel that he should do any plotting, that he was perfectly free to go over and start Thunder Agents, which lasted what two years? Yes. I mean, yeah. you know, it, I, I'm just amazed because I, I admire all these guys: Wally Wood, Steve Ditko, Kirby. Every one of them I admired before they did any Marvel work right. when I was a kid. And yet, as far as I'm concerned, certainly in terms of superheroes, I don't think any of them ever did as you know, I mean, I'm not a big fan of the fourth world, though it's pretty good in certain ways. But not one of them, to me, did better superhero work anywhere else than they ever did with Stan. Right. The magic is in the collaboration. Exactly. And so, yeah, yeah. And they don't, the conflict. trouble is, they, they don't, Stan didn't always give proper credit, but he gave a lot more credit verbally in, in, in the letters pages and other things uh, to Wally Wood and especially to, I mean, look at the first thing when Wally Wood just inked an issue of Avengers over what Don Heck or something, he put Wally Wood's name on the cover. Yeah, Wally he was Wood so, so excited much. about Wally Wood. At a time when the, when Jack Kirby was his name, here's Wally Wood's name on a cover. You know, I mean, and he, and he, he obviously loved Jack's work. So, and, he, and, he, and he loved Ditko's work. The trouble is, you know, you can't love people enough. You know, yeah. you know. Eventually, they begin to feel that they're the whole show. Yeah. And Stan sometimes acted like he was the whole show, which wasn't quite true either. But and he couldn't have done it with Jack, Jack Kirby in particular. I would never even begin to say that. Whether he would or not, I don't care. But the fact <laughs> remains that they couldn't have done it without each other, and the whole was better than the sum of its parts. And I think that Stan recognized that to, to a much greater extent than Steve or Jack or Wally or, the, or most of the artists ever did. Sir, we could talk to you all day. Yes, but no, you can't. Well, your time is, is, is vital, and so we want to thank yeah. you so much for joining us here today. Yes, at the last comic shop, Roy, we are such what? huge. Uh, what, what is this last comic shop? Well, we're the last mean, com- We're the hopefully not the last one. We are hopefully people say. keep on going to them and keep on buying comic right, books. Yeah. And sir, if, if you have such wonderful books out there that, like, if you are a new comic book fan, seek out something that has Roy Thomas writing it because you will be amazed. Whether it's <laughs> Gosh, how many of them? Any of his Avengers, any of his Avengers work, any of his Conan, uh, Invaders, Invaders uh, Justice, Justice hey, Society. And I used to not claim it, but now I'm I'm very interested in claiming you know co-creation of Wolverine because I knew it, but nobody until John uh, took over and started telling people, nobody else knew it because I never told anybody, you know, because wow. I was just the editor. But you know, and nobody realized that the Wolverine was my idea, not Len Wein. Oh wow. know, Even though he contributed a lot. Yeah, I'd heard that was a whole process with a, yeah, a bunch of people yeah. pitching yeah. in. And well, I told him, I said, I said, I want a, I, I want a Canadian hero. Got to have a name. Okay, so Wolverines are up in Canada. That's better than a moose. You know? <laughs> I wanted to be small, sharp, like a Wolverine, and real fierce. And then Len took it from there. He even threw in adamantium. That was all him, and he made him a mutant. That was him. So right. it was a co-creation, and, and of course with uh, yeah. John John Romita drawing the costume, and then Herb Trimpey realized the story. And yeah. Between the four of us, we kind of got that thing. You know, Unfortunately, going. Herb Trimpey's not legally. Yeah, the they don't seem to count Herb as the. But, but Herb, Herb, to me, Herb will always be the co-creator. He's as much the co-creator. If he is the co-creator right. of Wolverine, then George Tuska is the co-creator of Luke Cage because the process was very similar. Right. And a lot of other artists are not the creators because maybe John Buscema or even I mean, or John Romita or in some cases even me drew the first picture of the character. So if that's all that counts, you know, yeah. and, and, and it, it isn't. You know, obviously drawing that first story. Herb Trippy should be counted as uh, one of the. Co- he never seemed to worry about it, but I always it always bothers me and it bothers John. That, well, uh, let know. me just say something really quick that you should know. When these characters started making money, no, see, Roy lived off the grid. He just gives credit to everybody where mm-hmm. credits due, but sometimes he didn't get it back because when these characters started r- making money and do, all of a sudden some people got pushed out because they thought they could get maybe a better a bigger cut or yeah, something right. Right. Yeah. and so when you come back and so Roy's off the grid for many many years all of a sudden we come back on the grid and it's like wait a second and so we got to kind of backtrack and put that stuff back into publication where some people will come out be like wait a second he had nothing because they, they had no idea right and let me just say something really quick back in how I figured this out was back in 2013 I saw a, a, a message board and somebody wrote something and they said, will Roy Thomas ever get credit for co-creating Wolverine? And I just, I, I clicked on that and he was at a convention getting in line and some guy comes up to him and he, and he was wanted Roy to sign a, sign a Wolverine comic. And uh, he asked him if you co-created Wolverine and Roy told him the story. And the guy was kind of flabbergasted because that's not what he heard because that wasn't a lot, was in publication right. at that yeah, time. Yeah. 
So anyways, I took care of that. I went back and I changed everything and I made, it's all, so you can even say this, legal. I do legal stuff with Marvel, yeah. legal licensing. Yeah. The three co-creators listed as legal don't believe any bull that you hear a creator say and nobody knows. Yeah. And remember, he's the only living one alive. Right. And I can I got rid of all of Well, the only three co-creators is Roy Thomas, uh, Len Wein, and uh, John Ramita Sr. And unfortunately, Herb Trippy does not get credit and Roy always advocates, as he should. But if you look at the Logan, old man Logan, yeah. at the end there, when you see the credits come up, you see Roy Thomas, yeah. Len Wein, John Ramita Sr. And then the other guys that did, but you don't see Herb Trimp, which he should be there, but it's not anything deliberate that they're trying to do. It's just the way they've interpreted it. And right. you know, yeah. once something kind of gets in the system, it's kind of hard to you know. It, I never got credit on anything related to Wolverine in the film until Logan, which is the last of them. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, but that's okay. You know, the, I, the magic's in the co or in the collaboration, but the money's in the credit. Yeah, when he talks about being off the grid, he means South Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> So that was our wonderful interview with Roy Thomas. Hope all of our last comic shop fans enjoyed that fantastic interview. Thanks so much to both him and his wonderful manager gave us that time so graciously at the Hershey Comic Con. And thank you so much to Mikey Wood, our frequent last comic shop guest, who helped us out with that interview. If you would love to uh, listen to more interviews with great comic book creators in future, make sure that you're going out to www.lastcomicshoppodcast.com and subscribing to our fantastic podcast. I'm sure that we'll have plenty more interviews coming up. We've got some more just from uh, Hershey Comic Con that we'll be having in an upcoming episode. Folks like Joe Statton, folks like Scott Hanna. We're going to revisit with uh, our, our good friend Howard Chaikin, as well as some interviews from Baltimore Comic Con, all coming up on The Last Comic Shop. So make sure that you are subscribing. And if you want more coverage of all things comics, you can always check out our website. We've got links to all our social media. Um, we put out Twitter polls. we got Golden Age covers to tuck you in at bed at night. We like to highlight some of the new books on New Comic Book Day every week. So check us out. All the links are on our website, including links to our merch store if you need shirts, mugs, tote bags, everything for your comic book loving fan or yourself. Check it out there. And there's so many options for Roy Thomas books, we couldn't narrow them down. Between 60 years of making comic books and alter ego and everything else he's done, just find some stuff with Roy Thomas's name on it, and I'm sure you will be pleased. Okay. And until next week, uh, when we're going to be covering first volume of One Piece in celebration of the new live-action Netflix show that will be gracing our screens very shortly... I was the host with the most, Andy Larson. I was joined by Chad Smith, Jay Scott, and we hope that you stay safe. Stay talking, because it's better than being silent, <laughs> at least when you have a podcast. And remember that there are fantastic folks out there in this world that are putting out tremendous, tremendous creative endeavors. Uh, whether it's Roy Thomas, whether it's any of those wonderful other folks that make comic books, you've given us so much joy and wonderment over the years that we cannot thank you enough. So, thanks from the Last Comic Shop Podcast. What's a one piece? I tried Googling it, I got swimsuits. <laughs> Old lady swimsuits. You're going to the wrong websites, brother. Oh. Comic Shop was a 2023 Black Anders production.